You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I today are having a conversation with Tom Frieden, President and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, former head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, during the Obama administration, a member of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, and a good friend. Tom, thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you, Steve. It's great to speak with you. So let's start. You're in New York City. You're a New York native. You're former health commissioner of New York City. Tell us what it's like going through and witnessing what's happening now in, in New York City, which is truly astonishing. Steve, honestly, there are tears in my eyes. All day long, we hear sirens and the streets are empty. So those sirens are almost all ambulances going to hospitals. You've seen on the news, the overwhelmed healthcare system. I said 10 days ago, what we would see last week was large numbers of healthcare workers getting infected and potential for overwhelming our intensive care capacity. And sadly, that's coming to pass. In one 24-hour period, the most recent one for which there's reporting, there were 104 deaths from COVID-19 in New York City. To give you a sense of scale, on an average day in New York City, and I was health commissioner here for eight years, there are 147 deaths. So that's an increase by 60% in the total number of deaths. And for every death, we know there are many, many other people who are severely ill and sadly, many people who will die in the future. So this is a a terrible pandemic and it's crucial that we get straight what needs to get done, that we organize for success, that we focus on the highest priority actions. And in New York City today, in the midst of this excruciating emergency, what are those in your mind, those immediate actionable things that have to happen in order to avoid the worst outcomes? It's going to be different in different places at different times. Right now in New York City, the priority is to protect healthcare workers and to scale up our capacity for critical care while vigorously telling people with mild symptoms not to seek testing or care. People should only go to the hospital if they're having trouble breathing with cough and fever. That may sound harsh, but quite frankly, if you've got mild symptoms and you go in to get care, you might infect people as you travel there. You might infect people when you're getting care. You will use up scarce supplies from swabs to medical time that are better used for people who need them more. And if you're positive, all you're going to be told is go home and stay home. And if you're not infected, you might, well, get infected during that time. So that's very different from what different places need to do. And that's one of the key lessons here, that different communities need different approaches. But what we fundamentally need is clear federal guidance with evidence-based recommendations so that we can outline what will be the best way of meeting our three core goals, reduce the number of infections, reduce the death rate among those who are infected, and reduce our damage to our society and economy. Thank you, Tom. Um, Yesterday was quite striking in terms of the pivots that happened within the Trump administration. The White House task force and the president himself admitted openly that we're heading towards a large loss of life in the United States. Tony Fauci on the CNN show yesterday morning with Jake Tapper estimated 100 to 200,000 fatalities. 
The administration's acknowledging that we're looking at the next phase to involve a sudden upsurge across several major cities in the United States, including some in battleground states like Michigan and a number of southern states that are Republican strongholds. And the president has issued new guidance that really walks back talk of easing, early easing of social distancing controls. Tell us where you think things stand now in terms of the national approach. I think there's a crucial point that is not being well communicated. The point of staying at home, the point of sheltering in place is twofold. On the one hand, yes, we want to flatten the curve to reduce the risk that our healthcare system will be overwhelmed, resulting in healthcare workers infected and patients dying who could otherwise be saved. But there's a second equally urgent need. And I see us sticking our head in the sand, quite frankly. The second need is to get our systems ready, to get tracking eyes on the virus, to know where it's spreading, how it's spreading, and what the trend is. The second is to robustly scale up our health care facilities. And the third is to robustly scale up our public health capacity. To give you one important statistic, in Wuhan, China, they had 1,800 five-person teams doing contact tracing. That's 9,000 people. There is no place in the U.S. that's preparing to do that, and every place in the U.S. needs to prepare to do that right now. So this focus on is it this date or that date is really a distraction. And what we need to do is focus on what do we need to do to be able to open as soon and safely as possible. I want to ask uh, my colleague and co-host Andrew Schwartz to jump in here. Steve, thank you very much. Tom, this is becoming really scary to Americans. How did we get here to this scary place so quickly? This is an exponentially increasing pandemic. It's now very clear that this virus is like a super SARS. It is far more infectious than SARS, though it's not nearly as deadly. It spreads in all the same ways and more. Unlike SARS, the virus quantities peak early on in infection, and there's now growing evidence that a day or two before infection, people may be infectious, and that some proportion of people, maybe 10, 15%, will never have symptoms and yet may have high levels of virus, so may be able to spread it. That's all bad news. That means that this is a highly contagious disease, and we need to be very meticulous about our efforts and control measures. There are areas of hope in Singapore. They've been able to control it and they've not had a single healthcare worker infection yet, knock on wood. In other countries, and I'm in touch with many countries around the world, they're not finding many cases, even though they're testing very widely. They recognize that that may change in the future, but systems are getting up into place. And what we did is we squandered squandered the time we had that China bought by its lockdown and that maybe we got a few days or a week from the travel ban to China. But instead of saying this is going to miraculously go away, what we needed to be doing was producing N95 masks, scaling up our intensive care capacity. And what are we doing now? We, we seem to be always responding to last week's crisis. We need to be making thermometers in huge numbers every Household in America needs one. We need to be thinking about no-touch hand sanitizer dispensers. We need to be not just hoping, but planning and working to open as safely and as soon as possible. Tom, why did we squander so much time and why are we still 
arguing over testing? And are we not asking countries like South Korea for enough help with testing and other organizations like companies to help us get standardized tests so we can really collect enough data? I can't understand all of the reasons, but one thing that we've seen, not just at the national level in U.S., but in, in many countries, is the public health experts kind of pushed aside. And we see a lot of, frankly, amateur epidemiology in the news. There is a clear way to deal with this pandemic. And we will be most successful if we meticulously collect the information we need and base our actions on it. I do think at some level, it didn't seem real when it was in China. And when it hit Italy, suddenly it seemed real. And I'm afraid for many people, it doesn't seem real when they see it in New York City. But every community, every city in this country and around the world needs to be working at full clip. This is a war. It's World War C. It's us against the coronavirus. And we're all in it together. And if there's anything that gives me some hope, I think that perhaps coming through this and out of it, we will recognize the need for global solidarity, the need for learning from each other, from working together against a common enemy. Are you worried that this is getting too politicized already in the United States? I'm frankly appalled by some of the comments that I've heard made. There is only one enemy here. That enemy is a virus, the coronavirus. And the more we understand that even though we will have to physically distance for a while, we can be more socially connected. And that's what leadership should look like. Tom, we do face the reality that the White House Task Force daily briefings are becoming essentially campaign events with some interjections of public health advice or announcements. You know, that's a reflection of the choices made at the top of the White House to politicize this and to turn it into this confrontation against Democratic governors and the like. And many people are now calling for things that the White House is not considering. But I wanted to ask you, I mean, they've if we don't have something approaching a near total shutdown for at least a four or six week period, if we don't have somebody who has gravitas at the White House to coordinate and disentangle the marketplace on these key elements that are required, and as you point out, universalizing testing and having these squads at a local level for contact tracing, you're not going to have an ability to roll back the controls and begin to reintroduce schools and businesses and the like. So what do you say to this contradiction that we have a White House leadership that's becoming campaign events versus the clear call that's coming forward for those things that I just mentioned? I wrote about this uh, late last week. At our organization, Resolve to Save Lives, we advise governments all over the world in how to prepare for and respond to an emergency. And there's a best practice. It's not rocket science. It's very clear. There needs to be an incident management system, also called an incident command system. There needs to be one incident manager or commander. That individual needs to be tightly aligned with the political leadership. All policy decisions need to be made through a meticulous weighing of the options. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the public health agencies at the national, subnational, and global levels need to be centrally involved at the table and at the podium. Versus and with that kind of approach, we can minimize our harms. 
Tom, is it too optimistic to put dates on this? President and others keep saying, you know, we can expect that by June 1, we'll be well on our way to recovery, things like that. Is that the right way to approach this? I think the right way to approach this is to say we will do everything in our power to get back to business as quickly and safely as possible. And for that to happen, these are the things that each of us can do. These are the things that every business and school and university can do. These are the things that every healthcare center and hospital have to do. These are the things that every public health department has to do. And we all have to support the people on the front lines to do that. That's what leadership needs to look like here. Tom, what do you see when you're looking out over the balance of 2020 and into 2021? Tell us what you see as the possible pathways or scenarios. Are there two or three possibilities that you see? What the future holds depends on a lot of things. It depends on how we act now. It depends on whether we're able to get a reliable rapid test, whether we're able to get some treatments which might come out in a few months or even sooner that can reduce illness. That would take a huge weight off of our intensive care units and ultimately whether we get an effective vaccine that's safe and works for all of the people at highest risk. This is too hard, I think, to say what it's going to be like. If anyone tells you with certainty that this is what it's going to be like, they don't know enough about this virus. Tom, I just have to go back to something you just said. Americans can't understand why we can't now a couple weeks and months into this crisis and with all the headway we had with China and Italy, why can't we still come up with a uniform, rapid, reliable test? Testing isn't simple. First off, the sampling has to be done well. And sampling means, to be blunt about it, sticking something like a Q-tip very deeply into your nose and twirling it for about 10 seconds, like two and a half inches into your nose. It also requires transporting that to a laboratory and having the lab run it. It's not perfect. There are people with the infection for whom that test is negative. So testing has a very important role, but it has a different role at different times of the pandemic at different places. And we have to get that clear. But the more we get accurate, rapid testing up and into the community and into the hospitals, the better off we'll be. In New York City today, where there is an exponential increase in cases, we are strongly urging people who have symptoms not to get tested because it will not change their management. But in other places where cases are just coming in, or I think in some weeks when New York City has many fewer cases, then we also will be urgently trying to find every single infection. Why do you think there's so much confusion about this? I think we've had really a distraction. First off, there was unprecedented problem with the CDC tests and also a misunderstanding of what the role of the CDC's test capacity is. It's not to supply the entire country. It's to supply the public health departments. So there were really three failures here. The first was the CDC test didn't work correctly, and then the response to fix that took far too long. The second was that the FDA failed to allow hospitals and other advanced laboratories to develop their own tests for far too long. And third, the Department of Health and Human Services and the commercial laboratories didn't get into the game for far too long. That could have all been done back in January and February. Here we are in April, and it's just beginning to roll out. And that did put us behind. So are we on the right track now? We're moving in the right direction, but we have a lot further to go. 
Tom, how deep and long-lasting is the damage to CDC's position as a result of this? I think time will tell. We're still, sad to say, early on in the days of this pandemic in the U.S. I hope to see the CDC increasingly showcasing what it can do, increasingly relevant to the decisions that are being made, supporting state and local health departments. They have the world's best experts in the public health control of infectious disease. They have a terrific unit that deals with healthcare-associated infections and how to reduce healthcare worker infections. They have a terrific unit that's understanding how viruses spread. I think this really knocked them back, but I hope to see them steadily regain the kind of both effective action and respect for that effective action that we as Americans need them to have. Tom, can you talk a little bit about what's happening outside our borders? As a country, we've been understandably deeply focused in recent weeks on ourselves, on what's happening in the United States. And we're now needing to turn our attention increasingly to Africa, Latin America, India, and other parts of Asia. Things are moving very fast there. I know you're involved with, in partnership with the Bloomberg Foundation in assisting some African countries in their basic preparedness capacities. Tell us what you see unfolding, and most importantly, what kind of diplomacy is going to be needed by the U.S. government and other major powers in the next phase. This pandemic is behaving very differently in different times and different places, and it will change with time. Right now, Europe is being very hard hit. We're seeing some countries in Asia and Africa not have a lot of cases, sometimes because that's not they're not testing, but there are some countries that are testing extensively and not finding, indicating that they're not having a lot of cases yet. What happens in the future, only time will tell, and no country should think that it's going to be immune from this. The bigger picture, though, is that as the commission, Steve, has shown, and as we've been saying for some time, the U.S. has to engage with the world. It's not only the right thing to do, it's in our self-interest as well. And by doing so, we can help other countries be stronger there so we can be safer here. There are far too many blind spots in the world where disease can fester and spread and we would not know it until it hits us. We're only as strong as the weakest link. And one thing that simply must come out of this terrible tragedy is a global commitment to never allowing something like this to happen again, to not having this global system with so many flaws and so many weak spots that we can be blindsided by something that's truly a matter of life and death. So what's the best way for us to lead in that regard? So looking out on the horizon, we're not faced with this crisis again in six months. We need to commit to closing the gaps in preparedness all over the world. And that means leading in supporting the establishment of laboratory networks, disease tracking systems, rapid response teams, trained disease detectives and public health specialists. And we need to do that at scale urgently. It's not going to be a six month effort. It's not even going to be a six year effort. This will take at least five or 10 years to get the world on track to where if you look on our website, preventepidemics.org, you'll see much of the world is red or yellow. Green is better prepared. We can make that whole map green, but it's going to take somewhere on the order of 30 to $60 billion for public health alone, and it's going to take five or 10 years at a minimum. And we can't have attention deficit disorder. We need to focus on this and keep it front and center until 
the world is much safer than it is today. Tom, you know, we've in the commission, we talked about the cycle between crisis and neglect or crisis and complacency and how much that has bedeviled this field over the decades. And the question now, it seems to me, is, is something as gargantuan, something as colossal and historic as this pandemic, is it likely to finally crack that cycle? I certainly hope so, because if this doesn't, nothing will. And what gives you the greatest hope right now? I think we do see a growing global solidarity, a growing sense that we are all in it together, a growing commitment to working together, even remarkably, some of the pharmaceutical companies agreeing immediately to compulsive licensing, where anything made anywhere can be made anywhere else without patent concerns. This truly is a global public health emergency, and it will best be addressed by global solidarity. Thank you so much, Tom, for being with us today. And thank you for all the great work that you do today and that you've done over the last several decades. Thank you, Steve and Andrew, and thank you for what you're doing. Thanks, Tom. 